millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. What I've really loved about this research is I've learned so much more about Hamilton than I ever would have known about what does exist here and all the little treasures and spots which, I mean, are tucked away in gullies and things that you just, you never know exist. Kia ora, hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Canon DNA. Hannah Rogers has been all over Hamilton City for her master's research at the University of Waikato trying to figure out which are the best spots to focus attention on to enhance urban biodiversity. At the moment we have about 1.8% indigenous vegetation cover. So the council under the Nature and the City strategy is hoping to attain 10% indigenous vegetation cover by 2050. So it's a really ambitious target, uh, but it's also very exciting to look around the city and see what potential we have and all the groups that are coming together to try and make this possible. And that's essentially what your thesis was, having a look around the city, mapping it on GIS and noting what the potential could be. Yeah, exactly. So trying to use ecological criteria to justify why one site should be prioritised over another for restoration. Today we are at Hillcrest Park, one of the sites that Hannah looked at for her master's work, and one that is particularly important because of the remains of a kahikatea forest. Also known as white pine, kahikatea is New Zealand's tallest indigenous tree and can grow up to 60 metres. It can be found on North, South and Stewart Islands, though the best forest examples are now to be found on the west coast of the South Island. This is because it was once widespread in swamp forests around the North Island, but intensive logging in the late 1800s and 1900s decimated its numbers. Standing in front of a map of the park, Hannah explains what I'm looking at. So essentially the centre, this is the Kirkatea remnant. A 1.5 hectare area of forest is in the centre, with a scout hole amongst the trees. Around the outside is 5.6 hectares of green space, some of it used by locals for cricket and other games. The hope with this park and the, the real potential of it is really the maturity of these kikatea and using this as a nuclei for restoration and restoring this surrounding area could really be a fantastic um, opportunity for Hamilton. So we'll just sort of wander through and I'll show you what sort of state it's in and the potential of improving the remnant itself, but also the potential for restoring this outer edge. Heading into the trees, it's not far to walk, but the difference is immediate. Sure, there is still the sounds of the city filtering through, but way more birdsong. Plus, when I glance upwards, I can see the kahikatea towering above me. So some of these kahikatea are up to 120 years old. Yeah, really significant age. And 
it just really highlights the importance of protecting this amazing remnant that we have right in the middle of the city. The trees are cool. But for trees that old, it really doesn't have that mature forest feel. So if you look around in the park where we are standing right now, we can see that there's quite a lot of mahui in amongst the kikatum. But if we actually look near the ground, it's quite open and exposed. There aren't any epiphytic plants that were found in this remnant, which is an indication of its lack of moisture and its exposure to light and sort of conditions that aren't supportive of those species. So by epiphytes you mean like vines? So we mean plants that grow but aren't parasitic but grow on on other trees. Yeah. So a lot of planting has been done in here and the removal of some um, troublesome weeds which has been really fantastic but if you actually look deeper into it and what should be here there's some really significant gaps which could ultimately the, the point of this research is to identify those gaps and try and fill them so that we can improve the ecological health of it. So this is a site that has a lot of potential in terms of biodiversity, but it's not quite there. It needs a little bit of help. Yes, definitely. And there's been a lot of research over the years of which species have been here in the past and what we've lost. And that is a fantastic start just to say that we have that historical data, which is often a limitation, and saying, okay. We know what sort of species naturally exist in Kikatea remnants as, as one ecosystem type. And this is our opportunity really. It's in a good state in terms of not having a lot of weeds. So expanding the buffer and planting around in this extra five hectares for this park would ultimately improve those conditions. And yeah, and hopefully support a healthier ecosystem. So for these kind of case study sites, would you have gone and, as well as mapping them on GIS, also gone in and kind of done a survey of what they have and don't have in terms yes. of biodiversity with plants, with birds, with invertebrates, with all of the above? <laughs> so my focus has been on the native flora. So some of the analyses that I have done is measuring the diameter at breast height, which is essentially taking a tape and measuring around the trunk of a tree and from that measurement you can use an equation to estimate the age which is how I've just told you before that the yeah the maximum age is about 120 years for this kikatea so I measured the age population structure but I also took iNaturalist observations, so identifying which species were there, which contributed to the species composition criteria. And I used other people's observations, which had been verified amongst uh, different people in the community. Yeah, and I also took uh, the data and did things like life form analyses, looking at, okay, what functional groups do we have? So. In Hillcrest Park, we have a fantastic canopy of kikatea, but we don't have regeneration happening. Most of the shrubs have been planted, so there are definitely layers which were missing. And looking at those different functional groups and 
things like lianes, like you were saying, the vines in here and how that sort of contributes to the functioning of an ecosystem. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of different analyses um, just to get really a broad perspective of what we're looking at rather than just saying, oh yeah, I've been there, <laughs> this is what I think. So trying to use those ecological principles to really guide the selection of restoration techniques. In total, Hannah used eight ecological criteria, including what species are found at the site and how they're doing, but also things like the size of the site, its connectivity to other green spaces, as well as something called landform representativeness. In Hamilton City, there's alluvial plains, there are hills, there are peatlands, and all of these have a natural range that would have existed under indigenous vegetation prior to... Uh, human disturbances. So it's essentially looking at that natural range, first of all, and GIS, and I did a series of analyses quantifying that and then saying, based on what we do have at the moment, that 1.8%, then how much area do we need to make up for each of those landforms, yes, to make it representative of the original extent. Gotcha. What do we have already? What do we need to kind of fill out the set? Yes, because if we just restore, I mean, if we just focus on, say, the alluvial plains and we just restore the vegetation cover that's suited to that landform, then we're missing a whole bunch of native species that would have existed in the peatlands and the hills. So, yeah, that's, that's essentially what we're trying to avoid. Ultimately, what Hannah has produced is a tool for Hamilton City Council to prioritise the key sites, those that will help them make it to that 10% goal, but in a way that is true to what originally would have been there. Each environment has changed so much. I mean, cities are highly modified environments, so as they change so much, you have to take that approach of we want to bring back in what naturally occurred, but also is it now suitable? Will it actually be able to thrive in that environment? And, yeah, taking all those different considerations on board. It strikes me that it must be quite a different approach in an urban setting compared to, say, you know, an offshore island or the wild remotes of Fjordland or something. You have (laughs) a lot of different things to consider. Yeah, definitely. Restoring a small fragment, uh, because most of the indigenous vegetation in Hamilton City are small fragments, is a lot more work than restoring or adding to a larger area of indigenous vegetation. Yeah, it's definitely more work, but at the same time, it's really important and sort of highlights the preciousness of these patches that we still do have. Well, at first glance, it does seem harder, but there are some things that occur in urban settings that don't occur in the backcountry and wildland settings that we can use to our advantage. This is Professor Bruce Clarkson, Hannah's supervisor and programme lead of the multidisciplinary People, Cities and Nature Research Group. So some of the biggest limitations are to do with the nature of the soil and the drainage and all those physical things, because in building a city, often people have massively modified the physical environment. But when you look around you, one of the things you'll notice quite quickly, of course, is that we don't have grazing animals in cities. (laughs) So, you know, some of the biggest issues of all in restoring in the backcountry and rural areas are to do with the pest 
profile. What are the pests on the site? Uh, what, are, what are the other sorts of impacts, like uh, nutrient inputs from top dressing and adjoining farmland, all of those sorts of things. Yes, cities have a range of difficulties and constraints, but they also have a number of advantages. And of course, the most important advantage is all is being where the people are. And so, you know, we've got a ready-made labour force. When we want to do a project, we make connection. And, you know, there are people out there who want to do this work. So we've got the labour force. And, of course, cities are also the places often where a range of expertise is available. The engineers are here, you know, the, the social scientists are all close by. And so you can, you can utilise this expertise. And, um, of course, where are the resources? I mean, funding. Where is the funding? More people, more funding. There's all sorts of components in the urban system that can be used to your advantage to do this effectively. Though he is based here at the University of Waikato, the People's Cities and Nature program is spread across a number of universities and institutes around Aotearoa. So they are not just focused on Hamilton. The whole goal of the program when it was originally set up was would be to try and work out the best ways to bring nature back into cities in New Zealand. Urban centres, some of them places we work don't really even qualify as city, they're like large towns. And um, on an international scale, in fact, most of our cities are like that here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, yeah, the purpose was really to get the team together of the best available expertise in Aotearoa and then use that to build and learn how you bring nature back into urban centres. But it's not just about restoring the places that can be restored in urban areas. It's also about thinking about the future and when you're planning future areas, how you can have biodiversity in those new, say, housing estates. Yeah, it's about the multiple benefits that having nature in a city bring. It's not, not just about the, you know, the strictly speaking restoration of indigenous ecosystems. It's about the broader benefits of green space and nature and the processes that um, you need to bring to bear on the planning scenarios in order to do this job well. So, you know, you've heard today about the spatial planning aspect, but, you know, there's also all sorts of other styles of planning that's required to make this work. And it's not just an ecological science, it's got social science in it, it's got, you know, mataurunga, it's got all, all of those elements built into the program. We've got planners, you know, we've got people who know about um, policy, we've got people who know about environmental law, all of those things have been brought in together because you need all of that expertise to come up with solutions that are going to work in the urban space. It's a big program. How do you break that down? What do you focus on to make that happen? Well, we work at practically, we work in four research areas. So we have people focus on particular components. So, for example, the um, processes around restoration planting are the focus of one research aim. Similarly, we have other research aims which are focusing in on the planning and subdivision processes in, in cities so that you can understand when and where to inject the green space in that planning process, you know, preferably right at the start rather than coming in later and having to try and retrofit it. So th that's the way we approach it. And at the same time, even though we have these separate research aims, we do our absolute best to constantly look around and see how we can synthesise and integrate the different strands of work that are coming in for the program so that you can actually have that, you know, that broad overview when you're approaching a particular urban planning problem. And obviously to do that you need 
communities on board, you need councils on board. So you working closely across all of the different cities that you're in with those yeah. communities and councils? Well, in every city where we work, we have formed very strong relationships with the city council or whether it's a city council or a district council, whichever it is. And so we're trying to work right alongside them, even to the extent that, you know, occasionally we've done things like having a placement in the local city. You know, I've been down and worked in New Plymouth City, sat at the desk in the same room as the planners and and tried to understand what their problems and issues are as in the process of putting the program together. So we have very strong relationships with councils and the community groups often that are doing, doing the work on the ground. So in every one of the cities that we work, we've formed a connection with the key community groups and the key iwi that are involved in doing restoration in that city. That background noise you heard? A kid on a scooter. I think he was doing loops around the park. He passes by again later. Just one of the advantages of having these kinds of spaces. The health benefits of being involved in these sorts of projects are amazing. You know, this is how people actually get their exercise. This is how people are attracted to go out and do the recreation. And then some recent research that's coming out, both within New Zealand and internationally, is showing that connections to high-quality nature actually are directly important for your, your health. The notion of a microbiome and the connection between your gut microbiome and the soil microbiome in your backyard. If that's healthy, you're more likely to be healthy. So, the, you know, I mean, the benefits are just, there's so many of them. And a lot of people, of course, are just starting to realise how important it is, actually, to have nature in your own backyard. We've been talking so far about a few things specific to Hamilton. The kinds of landforms you find here, the vegetation, the different sites of interest. But will these ideas translate to other places? For every urban centre in New Zealand, it's a different recipe. And the way to start understanding what the recipe should be is to do the spatial analysis of the style that Hannah's done and then look for the, I guess, the sweet spots and the strong points where you can do the work and it will vary in every city because every city's got a different physical makeup, a different biotic makeup. All of those ingredients need to be considered when you develop your plan to bring nature back into the city. And are all of those cities aiming, is it just Kirikiriroa Hamilton that's aiming for that 10% or are all cities in New Zealand going to try and, and go for that? Well, currently there's a draft of the National Policy Statement of Indigenous Biodiversity that's been released for New Zealand. And one of the goals in that is actually to increase vegetation cover in urban centres to a minimum of 10%. Now, the reason that figure was derived also dates back to some research that we did in the early stages of our programme. So when you look at the urban centres across New Zealand, the range of uh, proportions of indigenous vegetation in New Zealand cities ranges from less than 1% right the way up to almost 9%. And the city in New Zealand, which proportionally has the greatest amount of indigenous vegetation cover, is Namotu, New Plymouth. And again, it comes back to the nature of the, the physical makeup of that city. It's, it's got the hills and the gullies, and you know, it's, it's in a, in a very um, a very good climate that supports recovery and regeneration of native forest. And so um, it's been the one that's sort of leading the way in terms of what's already in existence. Well, New Plymouth, of course, has signed on also to the 10% target. 
and they're currently working on it, except they, of course, have got a way smaller task mm -hmm. than we have here in Hamilton City. So they only need approximately, I think, 36 hectares of new indigenous habitat, and they will hit the 10% threshold. And, of course, what they don't know is that some of us in other cities, of course, are aiming for that as well, and we're hoping to catch them up and potentially pass them. So that's, it's like a, a little city competition that needs to occur. Internationally, Bruce says there are some cities that are doing much better than this, with up to 20 or even 30% indigenous biodiversity in urban areas. But there is research that shows that 10% is a good target to aim for. It's really a pragmatic threshold, which is actually underpinned by some serious research, international research, not just here in New Zealand, but international research, which suggests that if you don't have at least 10%, it's really almost impossible to, to hit the species occupancy that you require to maintain the majority of your biodiversity within the city. So that's, the, that's where the 10% comes from. And presumably you try and hit that 10% with what you have and then as the city grows you make sure that you make space so that you maintain at least that 10%. That's right, and as the city's grown here in Hamilton, in fact, it's been easier to achieve the 10% in the newer subdivisions than it is to retrofit where we've already done the damage. In terms of Kirikiriroa specifically, some of the main sites with potential to be retrofitted are the gullies. Here's Hannah Rogers again. The gullies really are a key opportunity in terms of connectivity, in terms of the conditions that they provide, having the topography that they do, and just having those low-lying sites means that the conditions are often cooler, they're better at retaining moisture, which is fantastic for diversity. But also the gullies are places which people have neglected for so many years, you know. People who own property that runs down into gullies have just used it as rubbish dumps and things. But they're being, becoming recognised as really key opportunities for Hamilton City restoration. The gullies are essentially tributaries of the major river, the Waikato River, which runs right through the centre of the city. And they are the, they are the drainage arteries, if you like, of the whole city. Because of their steep nature, the steep sides of the gullies and the, you know, the poor drainage in the base, of course, no one has really seen them as a place where you build a house. And this is the important part of the equation because what it also means is that nature has been left to take its course there. And many of the best remaining bits of native vegetation are in gullies for that very reason. But the point is the majority of Hamilton gullies currently uh, home to every weed known to humankind. But they have, once again, it's the potential. What is the potential here? Well, you know, lots of people are doing gully restoration in their own backyards. Uh, people are doing it in community groups. They're doing it right across the city. It's that network aspect which is, is the most important. It's a series of natural ecological corridors that permeate all the way through the city and at the same time provide a network for recreation. So nearly all the Hamilton gullies now have a boardwalk or a walkway or something in them. So eventually you can actually, you can pretty well walk from any part of Hamilton city across the city in any direction by following the gully network. So it's, it's not, again, it's not just about ecological restoration, it's about the benefit for the people of the city. 
So we're about to go to another site. Can you tell me a bit about that and how that's going to compare to where we are here? Yeah, so we're going to head over to Seeley's Gully, which is named after the late Dr. Elwyn Seeley, who was the man responsible for doing the restoration there. And um, it's, it's sort of viewed as the model of gully restoration in Hamilton City because of the length of time it's been restored. So the early stages of the restoration there started about 60 years ago and um, Elwyn Seeley started work there not knowing anything about native plants or restoration and progressively taught himself what he needed to know, uh, collected plants, grew plants, brought them back into the gully and I think when you come and see it you'll see why it's viewed as, as the model for Hamilton City. We stroll past a sign that tells the history of the gully and Dr Seeley's efforts and then down some steps into the trees. Already it feels different and the birdsong is noticeably louder. This feels more like a forest. Here's this big kauri that used to have the sign on it, this one here. Oh, it's beautiful. See the size of it. I mean, you know, you, can I get my arms around it or not? I can't. <laughs> No. <laughs> so, yeah, that gives you a good idea of no, how big the girth is. Still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, at the moment in the Waikato, we've got no sign of the kauri dieback. So, you see, this is the other thing about having these little patches that they're like little um, reservoirs or an ark for survival. Oh, it's beautiful in here. See, so when you get in there, you're starting to see, you know, see it's a multi tiered system. It's got shrubs and things growing on the ground and it's got sub-canopy trees and then big, big tall canopy trees and emergent trees. So that's the sign of, of, a, of a real forest ecosystem. It's got to have all of, the, all of the ingredients in there. That voice in the background asking if we are more helpers Great. is someone we meet on the path lugging a big black plastic bag full of weeds. So this is one of the key men in the process here. This is Gerard Kelly, who's the uh, community planting officer for Hamilton Hi, City Council. And this was not staged. We just happened to meet him. <laughs> what are you up to today? Uh, up to today, removing some of the very invasive weeds, bit of that battle against the weeds. So we're up on a bank removing elephant ear and Tradescantia, wandering Jew and... You've got a yeah. bag full. Yeah, we've got a bunch of people up there. Now the one's doing most of the mahi, yeah. I'm just bringing up some of the weeds for disposal. But yeah, they're doing a great job. We keep heading down the path, deeper into the forest, because what Hannah and Bruce want to show me is the comparison between the kahikatea here at Seeley's Gully compared to those at Hillcrest Park. So back at the other site, there were some big kahikatea trees already in existence, but down here, everything's planted. And you can get the sense of how well advanced it is here. So these kahikatea won't be as old no, and so well established as the other ones, but they'll have yep. maybe more of an understory? Yeah, some of them are now over 50 years old. And um, you're starting to see that building of a forest ecosystem. So you've actually got a good deep litter layer You've got an amazing understory, you know, smaller trees in the lower layers and the tree ferns have come in. And so the whole, the whole thing is starting to look like a real forest ecosystem and it's taken about 50, 50 years to get to that. 
they do look different. They have these cool, gnarly bases, not simply a trunk, but with extra structures fixing them into the damp soil. Their bark is that soft green you see in true bush, and around them are different, smaller growing plants. They're not as big as the ones where Hannah was showing the kakatiya, but they are pretty well advanced. And you see the buttressing down the bottom there? They're starting to take on the, you know, the real growth form that was characteristic of a um, semi-swamp kakatiya forest. See on here, we've got mosses and liverworts starting to colonise. See the green material on the trunk of the kakatiya there? Mosses and liverworts. So you're starting to get the full range of different life forms in the system, which means it's a, it's a well-advanced restoration and it's well on track to being a fully functioning, healthy kakatiya forest. Just looking across in here compared to Hillcrest Park, Looking at all the different tiers and the different functional groups that are in here that aren't in Hillcrest, the ferns, and you can see the little epiphytic ferns as well. And that's ultimately the favourable conditions that are here due to the restoration and all the work that they've put in that we don't yet have at Hillcrest, but that again is the potential of it. Thanks to Professor Bruce Clarkson and Hannah Rogers of the University of Waikato, and to Jared Kelly, Community Planting Officer from Hamilton City Council. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Katie Gossett for editing help. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series at RNZ. If you like to listen to podcasts, you can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. And check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for photos and links related to this story. You can also access the extensive back catalogue of episodes there and sign up to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Click on the Podcasts and Series tab on the RNZ website to explore a whole range of different awesome podcasts and video series. The Aotearoa History Show is back for a second season in which William Ray and Mani Dumlop bring you some more stories about New Zealand and its people. Check out the videos now on the RNZ website or on YouTube. In good news for the show, we were delighted last week that Our Changing World is nominated as a finalist in two categories for the 2022 New Zealand Radio Awards. But the show is nothing without its audience. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, to wiki.